Section 56 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 3, Part 3. Schultz went along the road to the town, and came to it not without having stumbled more than once in the ruts and the heaps of stones by the wayside. Before he went home he called in at the confectioner's to order a certain tart which was the envy of the town. Then he went home. But just as he was going in he turned back to go to the station to find out the exact time at which the train arrived. At last he did go home and called Salome and discussed at length the dinner for the morrow. Then only he went to bed worn out. But he was as excited as a child on Christmas Eve, and all night he turned about and about and never slept a wink. About one o'clock in the morning he thought of getting up to go and tell Salome to cook a stewed carp for dinner, for she was marvelously successful with that dish. He did not tell her, and it was as well, no doubt. But he did get up to arrange all sorts of things in the room he meant to give Christophe. He took a thousand precautions so that Salome should not hear him, for he was afraid of being scolded. All night long he was afraid of missing the train, although Christophe could not arrive before eight o'clock. He was up very early. He first looked at the sky. Kunz had not made a mistake. It was glorious weather. On tiptoe, Schultz went down to the cellar. He had not been there for a long time, fearing the cold and the steep stairs. He selected his best wines, knocked his head hard against the ceiling as he came up again, and thought he was going to choke when he reached the top of the stairs with his full basket. Then he went to the garden with his shears. Ruthlessly he cut his finest roses and the first branches of lilac in flower. Then he went up to his room again, shaved feverishly, and cut himself more than once. He dressed carefully and set out for the station. It was seven o'clock. Salome had not succeeded in making him take so much as a drop of milk, for he declared that Christophe would not have had breakfast when he arrived, and that they would have breakfast together when they came from the station. He was at the station three-quarters of an hour too soon. He waited and waited for Christophe, and finally missed him. Instead of waiting patiently at the gate, he went on to the platform and lost his head in the crowd of people coming and going. In spite of the exact information of the telegram, he had imagined, God knows why, that Christophe would arrive by a different train from that which brought him. And besides, it had never occurred to him that Christophe would get out of a fourth-class carriage. He stayed on for more than half an hour waiting at the station, when Christophe, who had long since arrived, had gone straight to his house. As a crowning misfortune, Salome had just gone out to do her shopping. Christophe found the door shut. The woman next door, whom Salome had told to say, in case anyone should ring, that she would soon be back, gave the message without any addition to it. Christophe, who had not come to see Salome and did not even know who she was, thought it a very bad joke. He asked if Herr Universitätsmusikdirektor Schultz was not at home. He was told, yes, but the woman could not tell him where he was. Christophe was furious and went away. When old Schultz came back with a face an L long and learned from Salome, who had just come in too, what had happened, he was in despair. He almost wept. He stormed at his servant for her stupidity in going out while he was away and not having even given instructions that Christophe was to be kept waiting. 
Salome replied in the same way that she could not imagine that he would be so foolish as to miss a man whom he had gone to meet. But the old man did not stay to argue with her. Without losing a moment, he hobbled out of doors again and went off to look for Christophe, armed with the very vague clues given him by his neighbors. Christophe had been offended at finding nobody and not even a word of excuse. Not knowing what to do until the next train, he went and walked about the town and the fields, which he thought very pretty. It was a quiet, reposeful little town sheltered between gently sloping hills. There were gardens round the houses, cherry trees and flowers, green lawns, beautiful shady trees, pseudo-antique ruins, white busts of bygone princesses on marble columns in the midst of the trees, with gentle and pleasing faces. All about the town were meadows and hills. In the flowering trees blackbirds whistled joyously for many little orchestras of flutes, gay and solemn. It was not long before Christophe's ill-humor vanished. He forgot Peter Schultz. The old man rushed vainly through the streets questioning people. He went up to the old castle on the hill above the town and was coming back in despair when, with his keen, far-sighted eyes, he saw some distance away a man lying in a meadow in the shade of a thorn. He did not know Christophe. He had no means of being sure that it was he. Besides, the man's back was turned towards him and his face was half hidden in the grass. Schultz prowled along the road and about the meadow with his heart beating. It is he. No, it is not he. He dared not call to him. An idea struck him. He began to sing the last bars of Christophe's lead. Auf, auf, up, up. Christophe rose to it like a fish out of the water and shouted the following bars at the top of his voice. He turned gladly. His face was red and there was grass in his hair. They called to each other by name and ran together. Schultz strode across the ditch by the road. Christophe leaped the fence. They shook hands warmly and went back to the house laughing and talking loudly. The old man told how he had missed him. Christophe, who a moment before had decided to go away without making any further attempt to see Schultz, was at once conscious of his kindness and simplicity and began to love him. Before they arrived, they had already confided many things to each other. When they reached the house, they found Kuntz, who, having learned that Schultz had gone to look for Christophe, was waiting quietly. They were given café au lait, but Christophe said that he had breakfasted at an inn. The old man was upset. It was a real grief to him that Christophe's first meal in the place should not have been in his house. Such small things were of vast importance to his fond heart. Christophe, who understood him, was amused by it secretly, and loved him the more for it, and to console him he assured him that he had appetite enough for two breakfasts, and he proved his assertion. All his troubles had gone from his mind. He felt that he was among true friends, and he began to recover. He told them about his journey and his rebuffs in a humorous way. He looked like a schoolboy on holiday. Schultz beamed and devoured him with his eyes and laughed heartily. It was not long before conversation turned upon the secret bond that united the three of them, Christophe's music. Schultz was longing to hear Christophe play some of his compositions, but he dared not ask him to do so. Christophe was striding about the room and talking. Schultz watched him whenever he went near the open piano, and he prayed inwardly that he might stop at it. The same thought was in Kunz. Their hearts beat when they saw him sit down mechanically on the piano stool, without stopping talking, and then, without looking at the instrument, run his fingers over the keys at random. 
As Schultz expected, hardly had Christoph struck a few arpeggios than the sound took possession of him. He went on striking chords and still talking. Then there came whole phrases, and then he stopped talking and began to play. The old man exchanged a meaning glance, sly and happy. Do you know that? asked Christoph, playing one of his leader. Do I know it? said Schultz delightedly. Christoph said without stopping, half turning his head, Ooh, it is not very good, your piano. The old man was very contrite. He begged pardon. It is old, he said humbly. It is like myself. Christophe turned round and looked at the old man, who seemed to be asking pardon for his age, took both his hands and laughed. He looked into his honest eyes. Oh, he said, you are younger than I. Schultz laughed aloud and spoke of his old body and his infirmities. Ta-ta-ta, said Christophe. I don't mean that. I know what I am saying. It is true, isn't it, Kunz? They had already suppressed the hair. Kunz agreed emphatically. Schultz tried to find the same indulgence for his piano. It has still some beautiful notes, he said timidly, and he touched them, four or five notes that were fairly true, half an octave in the middle register of the instrument. Christoph understood that it was an old friend, and he said kindly, thinking of Schultz's eyes, Yes, it still has beautiful eyes. Schultz's face lit up. He launched out on an involved eulogy of his old piano. But he dropped immediately, for Christophe had begun to play again. Leader followed leader. Christophe sang them softly. With tears in his eyes, Schultz followed his every movement. With his hands folded on his stomach, Kunz closed his eyes, the better to enjoy it. From time to time Christoph turned, beaming towards the two old men who were absolutely delighted, and he said with a naive enthusiasm at which they never thought of laughing, Hein, it is beautiful, I, and this, what do you say about this, and this again, this is the most beautiful of all, now I will play you something which will make your hair curl. As he was finishing a dreamy fragment, the cuckoo clock began to call. Christoph started and shouted angrily, Kunz was suddenly awakened and rolled his eyes fearfully. Even Schultz did not understand at first. Then, when he saw Christoph shaking his fist at the calling bird and shouting to someone in the name of heaven to take the idiot and throw it away, the ventriloquist specter, he too discovered for the first time in his life that the noise was intolerable, and he took a chair and tried to mount it to take down the spoil sport. But he nearly fell, and Kunz would not let him try again. He called Salome. She came without hurrying herself, as usual, and was staggered to find the clock thrust into her hands, which Christophe, in his impatience, had taken down himself. "'What am I to do with it?' she asked. "'Whatever you like, take it away. Don't let us see it again,' said Schultz, no less impatient than Christophe. He wondered how he could have borne such a horror for so long. Salome thought that they were surely all cracked. The music went on. Hours passed. Salome came and announced that dinner was served. Schultz bade her be silent. She came again ten minutes later, then once again, ten minutes after that. This time she was beside herself and boiling with rage while she tried to look unperturbed. She stood firmly in the middle of the room, and in spite of Schultz's desperate gestures, she asked in a brazen voice, Do the gentlemen prefer to eat their dinner cold or burned? It does not matter to me. I only await your orders." Schultz was confused by her scolding and tried to retort, but Christoph burst out laughing. Kunz followed his example, and at length Schultz laughed too. Salome, satisfied with the effect she had produced, 
turned on her heels with the air of a queen who is graciously pleased to pardon her repentant subjects. "'That's a good creature,' said Christophe, getting up from the piano. "'She is right. There is nothing so intolerable as an audience arriving in the middle of a concert.' They sat at table. There was an enormous and delicious repast. Schultz had touched Salome's vanity, and she only asked an excuse to display her art. There was no lack of opportunity for her to exercise it. The old friends were tremendous feeders. Kunz was a different man at table. He expanded like a sun. He would have done well as a sign for a restaurant. Schultz was no less susceptible to good cheer, but his ill health imposed more restraint upon him. It is true that generally he did not pay much heed to that, and he had to pay for it. In that event he did not complain. If he were ill, at least he knew why. Like Kunz, he had recipes of his own handed down from father to son for generations. Salome was accustomed, therefore, to work for connoisseurs. But on this occasion she had contrived to include all her masterpieces in one menu. It was like an exhibition of the unforgettable cooking of Germany, honest and unsophisticated, with all the scents of all the herbs and thick sauces, substantial soups, perfect stews, wonderful carp, sauerkraut, geese, plain cakes, aniseed, and caraway seed bread. Christophe was in raptures with his mouth full, and he ate like an ogre. He had the formidable capacity of his father and grandfather, who would have devoured a whole goose. But he could live just as well for a whole week on bread and cheese, and cram when occasion served. Schultz was cordial and ceremonious and watched him with kind eyes, and plied him with all the wines of the Rhine. Kunz was shining and recognized him as a brother. Salome's large face was beaming happily. At first she had been deceived when Christophe came. Schultz had spoken about him so much beforehand that she had fancied him as an excellency, laden with letters and honors. When she saw him she cried out, "'What? Is that all?' But at table Christophe won her good graces. She had never seen anybody so splendidly do justice to her talent. Instead of going back to her kitchen, she stayed by the door to watch Christophe, who was saying all sorts of absurd things without missing a bite, and with her hands on her hips she roared with laughter. They were all glad and happy. There was only one shadow over their joy, the absence of Patpietschmidt. They often returned to it. Ah, if he were here, how he would eat, how he would drink, how he would sing! Their praises of him were inexhaustible. If only Christophe could see him! But perhaps he would be able to. Perhaps Patpietschmidt would return in the evening, on that night at latest. Oh, I shall be gone tonight, said Christophe. A shadow passed over Schultz's beaming face. What? Gone? he said in a trembling voice. But you are not going. Oh, yes, said Christophe gaily. I must catch the train tonight. Schultz was in despair. He had counted on Christophe spending the night perhaps several nights, in his house, he murmured. No, no, you can't go, Kunz repeated. And Patpietschmidt! Christophe looked at the two of them. He was touched by the dismay on their kind, friendly faces, and said, How good you are! If you like, I will go tomorrow morning. Schultz took him by the hand. Ah, he said, how glad I am! Thank you, thank you! He was like a child, to whom tomorrow seems so far, so far, that it will not bear thinking on. Christophe was not going to-day. To-day was theirs. They would spend the whole evening together. He would sleep under his roof. That was all that Schultz saw. He would not look further. 
They became merry again. Schultz rose suddenly, looked very solemn, and excitedly and slowly proposed the toast of their guest, who had given him the immense joy and honor of visiting the little town and his humble house. He drank to his happy return, to his success, to his glory, to every happiness in the world, which with all his heart he wished him. And then he proposed another toast to noble music, and another to his old friend Kunz, another to spring, and he did not forget Potpietschmidt. Kunz in his turn drank to Schultz and the others, and Christoph, to bring the toasts to an end, proposed the health of Dame Salome, who blushed crimson. Upon that, without giving the orators time to reply, he began a familiar song which the two old men took up, after that another, and then another for three parts which was all about friendship and music and wine. The whole was accompanied by loud laughter and the clink of glasses continually touching. It was half-past three when they got up from the table. They were rather drowsy. Kuntz sank into a chair. He was longing to have a sleep. Schultz's legs were worn out by his exertions of the morning and by standing for his toasts. They both hoped that Christophe would sit at the piano again and go on playing for hours. But the terrible boy, who was in fine form, first struck two or three chords on the piano, shut it abruptly, looked out of the window, and asked if they could not go for a walk until supper. The country attracted him. Kunz showed little enthusiasm, but Schultz at once thought it an excellent idea, and declared that he must show their guest the walk round the Schönbuchwader. Kunz made a face, but he did not protest, and got up with the others. He was as desirous as Schultz of showing Christoph the beauties of the country. They went out. Christoph took Schultz's arm and made him walk a little faster than the old man liked. Kunz followed, mopping his brow. They talked gaily. The people standing at their doors watched them pass, and thought that Herr Professor Schultz looked like a young man. When they left the town, they took to the fields. Kunz complained of the heat. Christoph was merciless and declared that the air was exquisite. Fortunately for the two old men, they stopped frequently to argue, and they forgot the length of the walk in their conversation. They went into the woods. Schultz recited verses of Goethe and Mörike. Christoph loved poetry, but he could not remember any, and while he listened he stepped into a vague dream in which music replaced the words and made him forget them. He admired Schultz's memory. What a difference there was between the vivacity of mind of this poor rich old man, almost impotent, shut up in his room for a great part of the year, shut up in his little provincial town almost all his life, and Hassler, young, famous, in the very thick of the artistic movement, and touring over all Europe for his concerts, and yet interested in nothing, and unwilling to know anything. Not only was Schultz in touch with every manifestation of the art of the day that Christoph knew, but he knew an immense amount about musicians of the past and of other countries of whom Christoph had never heard. His memory was a great reservoir in which all the beautiful waters of the heavens were collected. Christoph never wearied of dipping into it, and Schultz was glad of Christoph's interest. He had sometime found willing listeners or docile pupils, but he had never yet found a young and ardent heart with which he could share his enthusiasms, which sometimes so swelled in him that he was like to choke. They had become the best friends in the world, when unhappily the old man chanced to express his admiration for Brahms. Christoph was at once coldly angry, he dropped Schultz's arm and said harshly that anyone who loved Brahms could not be his friend. That threw cold water on their happiness. 
Schultz was too timid to argue, too honest to lie, and murmured and tried to explain. But Christophe stopped him. Enough! It was so cutting that it was impossible to reply. There was an icy silence. They walked on. The two old men dared not look at each other. Kunz coughed and tried to take up the conversation again and to talk of the woods and the weather. But Christophe sulked and would not talk and only answered with monosyllables. Kunz, finding no response from him, tried to break the silence by talking to Schultz. But Schultz's throat was dry. He could not speak. Christophe watched him out of the corner of his eyes, and he wanted to laugh. He had forgiven him already. He had never been seriously angry with him. He even thought it brutal to make the poor old man sad. But he abused his power and would not appear to go back on what he had said. They remained so until they left the woods. Nothing was to be heard but the weary steps of the two downcast old men. Christophe whistled through his teeth and pretended not to see them. Suddenly he could bear it no longer. He burst out laughing, turned towards Schultz, and gripped his arm. "'My dear good old Schultz,' he said, looking at him affectionately, "'isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful?' He was speaking of the country and the fine day, but his laughing eyes seemed to say, "'You are good. I am a brute. Forgive me. I love you much.' The old man's heart melted. It was as though the sun had shone again after an eclipse. But a short time passed before he could utter a word. Christophe took his arm and went on talking to him more amiably than ever. In his eagerness he went faster and faster, without noticing the strain upon his two companions. Schultz did not complain. He did not even notice his fatigue. He was so happy. He knew that he would have to pay for that day's rashness, but he thought, "'So much the worse for tomorrow. When he is gone I shall have plenty of time to rest.' But Kunz, who was not so excited, followed fifteen yards behind, and looked a pitiful object. Christophe noticed it at last. He begged his pardon confusedly, and proposed that they should lie down in a meadow in the shade of the poplars. Of course Schultz acquiesced without a thought for the effect it might have on his bronchitis. Fortunately, Kunz thought of it for him. Or at least he made it an excuse for not running any risk from the moisture of the grass when he was in such a perspiration. He suggested that they should take the train back to the town from a station close by. They did so. In spite of their fatigue, they had to hurry, so as not to be late, and they reached the station just as the train came in. End of section 56